Welcome back to Counting to Five, a podcast about the United States Supreme Court. I'm Mike, your host, and this is our weekly YouTube live stream being broadcast live Thursday, March 8th, 2018 at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And this live stream will also be posted as a as an episode of the Counting to Five audio podcast. If you are watching the uh, this live stream, if you're watching live, please feel free to ask questions at any time in the YouTube live chat, and I'll try to monitor it and periodically uh, answer any questions as they come up. Um, these weekly live streams are held uh, every week. We're trying to uh, keep a regular schedule of uh, Thursday evenings at 9 p.m. Eastern. Uh, in these weekly live streams, we try to keep up to date with uh, all of the latest uh, news coming out of the Supreme Court. Um, and here's what I plan to uh, cover today. The court granted uh, two new cases, so, so they, they uh, agreed to hear two new cases. These will be cases coming up uh, next term, um, and we'll, we'll talk about each of those. There's uh, some interesting uh, legal issues in these, these two new cases. The court also issued two new opinions in argued cases. They were, these were both uh, unanimous uh, decisions, but they're not in... Um, Cases that, that most people have probably heard of. These are not uh, very high-profile cases, but uh, still uh, kind of interesting little opinions. And uh, and then there's a few other um, uh, kind of miscellaneous uh, orders uh, that, that came out in the last week. So uh, without any further ado, I'll, I'll uh, just dive right in and get started. Let's talk about um, a few of the uh, just um, other developments at the court. So last Friday, that's uh, March 2nd, the court issued a stay order in a uh, a case um, a case called Henry Shine Inc v Archer and White Sales Inc. Now this is a, a lower court case that has not yet made its way up to the Supreme Court, but this is a, a party in that case is uh, sought a uh, made an application to the court to stay the proceedings below. Um, pending a uh, petition to the Supreme Court, to, they're asking the Supreme Court to take the case, and they're arguing that they will be uh, harmed if the proceedings below are allowed to go forward um, in the uh, in the interim. And what this case is about, this is it's a case under the Federal Arbitration Act, and if you've listened to previous episodes, you may recall this is something that's come up uh, several times before. Um, but the the Federal Arbitration Act is a, a federal statute that makes uh, contractual arbitration provisions enforceable in court. So if you have a contract that says disputes arising under this contract um, will be subject to arbitration, then um, if a party sues uh, un- under the contract, the, the other party can invoke that arbitration clause to have the case basically tossed out of court and uh, the party uh, – the Suing party would be forced to go through arbitration instead, um, and specifically, this is this is about uh, a a um, part of a an arbitration uh, provision known as the delegation clause, and this is a a, um, a very common feature of arbitration provisions that says if there's a dispute over whether certain issues fall within um, the arbitration provision in the first place, then that very question of whether these issues are arbitrable should be first decided by the arbitrator. So if one of the parties says this does not fall this what I'm suing uh what I'm suing you over doesn't fall under this arbitration provision so I should be able to go straight to the court the delegation clause can be invoked to say no go to the arbitrator and have the arbitrator decide if this belongs in arbitration or or belongs in court. Um that's the basic the basic idea. Now what what is this particular case about? 
Um, it was a lawsuit between a uh, dental equipment manufacturer and a distributor and servicer. Um, the distributor, that's the Archer and White, they brought an antitrust action um, alleging an anti-competitive restriction on sales ter- territories. So they brought this against the manufacturer, Shine. Um, that uh, The manufacturer moved to compel arbitration, so invoked this arbitration provision and said, um, you can't sue us in court, this needs to be arbitrated. Um, the district court denied that motion, so allowed the claim to stay in court, um, invoking uh, an exception um, that has that uh, um, has arisen in the lower courts, an exception to the general um, uh, enforcement of these arbitration provisions under the Federal Arbitration Act. It's uh, referred to as the wholly groundless exception when uh, when an arbit- when an ar- when a court says that an argument um, for for why a particular dispute is arbitrable so falls within an arbitration provision when that argument is wholly groundless then um courts should should retain those uh those cases rather than um rather than allowing the delegation clause to be used to send them out to an arbitrator and the the idea is is that would just be wasteful and it would send things to arbitration that don't belong there only for it to have the arbitrator you know send it back to court and uh and so you know the, the the parties in this dispute they they, they frame this uh, this exception very differently. Uh, you know, according to the the manufacturer, the one who's trying to um, compel arbitration, so get this sent into arbitration. Um, this this whole holy groundless doctrine that's arisen in the lower courts is is an example of the lower courts kind of ev- evading clear Supreme Court precedent on the enforcement, the enforceability of delegation clauses. And, and it kind of reflects this, uh, this hostility from some judges to, um, arbitration to, to, uh, broad arbitration provisions and the, you know, the Supreme Court's upholding of, um, of arbitration provisions. On the other side, um, the, the argument on the other side is, is that no, that this is, this is just the courts evaluating the contractual boundaries and that's, that's necessary, um, anytime you have a, you're relying on contractual provision, um, including the, the the arbitration provision and the delegation clause within the arbitration provision, it has some bounds, and the court needs to decide if that provision even applies uh, at all, whether whether this dispute is even within the contract, and and so that this really should just be seen as a routine application of a non-controversial idea. Is is this even within um, the the subject matter that's uh, Contemplated by the arbitration provision in the contract in the first place. Um, so, uh, in, in any case, the, the Supreme Court um, granted the stay, and uh, the lower court proceedings are, are on hold. Um, the the party that, that sought the the stay argued um, that they would face irreparable harm if this uh, if the lower court proceedings were allowed to go forward. The trial in this case is currently scheduled to start in May. And so they are arguing that they'd be forced into a trial that the whole purpose of an arbitration provision is to avoid and incurring um, the expenses uh, required to to prepare for trial. Um, and and so if arbitration provisions are you know to, are to be effective in allowing parties to uh, choose these uh, less expensive and um, uh, less burdensome options to litigation, then you know there needs to be some teeth to that, and uh, and a state should be granted. That's the that's you know the basic argument there. Um, what's the implication of the court granting this this uh, the this stay order? Well, um, there's there's no telling whether the court will actually end up taking this case. The petition has not even yet been filed by the parties. They just made this emergency you know application for a state. Um, uh, 
to give them time. Um, and the court may or may not take the case, but it, it, the fact that they granted the stay is a good sign that they're at least very seriously um, considering it. And this is an I- issue that they're uh, that at least um, a number of uh, the, just, the justices uh, takes five justices to grant a stay. So at least uh, five of the justices on the court think that this is a serious enough issue that it's worth considering. Um, so it will just have to wait and see uh, what happens in the future on that case. Um, one other interesting development uh, was on Monday. So on Monday morning, the court issued its orders list, and that's uh, that's a uh, list of orders that come out of its um, its regular uh, private conferences. And the court had a conference last week on Friday, and this uh, th- these orders lists routinely include uh, long lists of numerous um, petitions that the court is denying. So cases that had sought cert at the Supreme Court, so they'd asked this, the court to hear uh, various cases. And um, if you've, you know, if you've been uh, following the Supreme Court, you know that the court only takes something in the ballpark of 1% of all the petitions that are sent to it are actually accepted um, uh, onto the court's docket. So the vast majority of cases just get denied and um, almost all of these cases get denied without any comment. It's just a single line on an orders list that lists the name of the case, and then it'll say um, the uh, petition is uh, petition for certiorari is denied. Um, but occasionally, a justice wants to uh, say something more about about a particular case, and this is there's was one example of that um, uh, that came out uh, with Monday's order list, and this was a case called Wessinger v. Vinoy. And uh, Justice Sotomayor fi- um, filed an opinion uh, dissenting from the denial, so so arguing that the court uh, should have accepted this case, should have taken this case. So, what is this case about? Well, it's a it's a um, a capital sentencing case. So, Wessinger in in this case was is a um, a uh, convicted murderer. He was convicted in 1995 of a uh, double murder during a robbery of a restaurant uh, where he had formerly worked. And um, the key issue in this case is um, ineffective assistance of counsel. Uh, the argument specifically is that his counsel was ineffective at the sentence, the capital sentencing stage of his case. So, in a um, in a capital case, they're they're generally divided into two phases. There's the guilt phase, and if a um, if a defendant is found to be guilty of a crime that carries a potential um, uh, death sentence, then there's a sentencing phase where um, evidence will be presented to the jury uh, and the jury will have to find that there are some aggravating um, circumstances that uh, that um, um, make someone uh, that mean that that, that defendant is, uh, ought to get the death penalty. Now, part of that sentencing phase is uh, is normally is the presentation of mitigation evidence um, by the defense. Uh, now, it's important to understand that under Supreme Court precedent, in capital sentencing, a defendant is entitled, can, can't be limited uh, in the subjects that they um, present in, in mitigation. Uh, a defendant is allowed to present evidence of anything that a jury might find would reduce their culpability. So this, this you know, and this can include things about the specifics of that crime, or it can be general things about the defendant and their life and uh, you know, possibly things about their upbringing or things about their um, their 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 mental state, uh, things like that. Anything that the that might potentially um, cause a juror to to uh, uh, feel that they have uh, reduced culpability for the crime that might lead a juror to decide against the death penalty. 
Um, and in this case, the argument is there, there were, um, some, uh, some mitigation evidence specifically related to, to, um, brain disorders that this, uh, criminal, um, defendant, uh, uh, had that that uh, affect his executive functioning, uh, impulse control, things like that, um, and also uh, just uh, evidence uh, uh, about um, his his childhood, about uh, growing up in poverty, um, and uh, uh, and that that type of information. None of that was presented at the capital sentencing. So there's an argument um, that there was ineffective assistance of counsel, but um, it's it's a bit more complicated than that, and it kind of brings us into some of the um, complications uh, that, that are involved in um, habeas corpus cases. So a habeas corpus case is a, it's um, what's known as post-conviction review. It's, it's um, separate proceedings that are brought to challenge a, um, a, a previous conviction. And these generally go in, in two phases. There's state habeas review, um, where someone goes to a state court through whatever procedures a state court has established for this type of thing to, to raise claims, uh, including claims that, uh, the counsel was ineffective at trial. Um, and then, uh, a defendant can follow state, uh, habeas with, with federal habeas, um, claims where they go to a federal court and bring them. But there's, there's, uh, it, the entire habeas process is, is quite complicated and there's, uh, very, um, specific rules about, about, um, raising claims and and uh, waiving claims that aren't raised at the appropriate time during during the um, the whole process, um, and sp- specifically when 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 a claim is um, when a claim is not raised in state habeas, and then a party goes to the federal court and tries to raise that claim that they didn't bring up in state habeas, um, that's that's um, it's often that's it's considered it's called procedurally defaulted. That that claim is no longer um, can no longer be brought. Uh, you waive your right to bring that later by failing to bring it at the appropriate time um, in the uh, in the um, the the whole st- series of proceedings. Now, in, in this particular case, um, the allegation here is that the state post conviction counsel. So this is the the attorneys representing in the uh, the defendant in the state habeas proceedings failed to investigate. Um, mitigation, so failed to investigate whether there was additional mitigating evidence that could have been presented by the trial counsel. Uh, and here's this is a quote from uh, Justice Sotomayor's opinion. It says, um, counsel did not obtain any medical records, school records, employment records, or family history records, or and did not conduct interviews of any witnesses, friends, teachers, coaches, or family members regarding potential mitigating factors, aside from having a couple brief conversations with Wessinger's mother and brother. So you know, the, the, you know, the argument here is that the state um, habeas counsel um, was basically ineffective. So you have two different layers of ineffective assistance. First, you have trial counsel who um, is uh, alleged to have uh, provided ineffective assistance by failing to present mitigation evidence at the sentencing hearing. And then you had state habeas counsel who were ineffective in not uncovering that failure by trial counsel. And this is important because the Supreme Court decided a case in 2012 called Martinez v. Ryan and in that case, uh, they argue the, the the court held that when when it, as is sometimes the case when the 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 first opportunity that a defendant has to argue that their trial lawyer was ineffective is in state habeas, then if the state habeas lawyer is also ineffective, that won't amount to a procedural default. So the idea is that the 
the defendant needs at least one fair opportunity to raise the ineffective assistance of counsel. And if their their habeas counsel is also ineffective, then that takes away that opportunity. And so it doesn't they, they're not stripped of the ability to bring that claim in federal court. Um, now, the issue here is that the the um, Fifth Circuit, which is the, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, where this case came up to from this uh, came up from to the Supreme Court, um, they decided uh, they held that there was no ineffective assistance of counsel by the state court post-conviction counsel. So the state habeas corpus, corpus counsel was not ineffective. Therefore, um, Westinger is barred from raising this claim in federal court because it uh, um, because there wasn't ineffective assistance in the state court. Um, Justice Sotomayor disputes this uh, uh, very uh, heavily, saying that there basically was no excuse for the failure to investigate mitigation by the state habeas counsel, um, and, uh, and and concludes with some fairly strong language, saying, "This is here's another quote from Justice Sotomayor's opinion." Uh, the layers of ineffective assistance of counsel that Wessinger received constitute precisely the type of error that warrants relief under this court's precedent. Yet Wessinger will remain on death row without a jury ever considering the significant mitigation evidence that is now apparent. Um, so that's uh, that's that's kind of the size of that. Now, Sotomayor was the only uh, only name on this dissent. Um, now, that doesn't necessarily issue, indicate in these cases um, it's, it's kind of a, a strange uh, practice that the court has. But on um, these uh, these orders, when we're not talking about the um, signed opinions after an argued case, but we're just talking about other various other orders that are issued by the court, um, dissents are not necessarily indicated. A justice can dissent, but not choose to have their dissent noted, so that it just uh, it looks like a, a you know an, a just any other case, just a, a line saying denied with no no other uh, um, no other indication or no other um, notation on it that would indicate that any justices disagreed with that. Um, and it's it's conceivably possible that uh, other justices could uh, agree with Justice Sotomayor. Uh, one or more other justices could also um, agree with with her here. But um, you know the fact that uh, she's the only one uh, with her name on this suggests that she's all by herself on this. And as is typical in these. Um, uh, dissents from, from a, a denial like this. Um, there's no response from the other members of the court explaining the denial of the petition. Um, it stands alone. It's, it's this, that, which is, which is, as I said, is typical. That's normal for these. You'll see these occasional dissents from a denial, but it's unusual for there to be any response from the justices that, it, that, uh, you know, agreed with the denial. Um, so you're left just to speculate on, on exactly where the disagreement is. is. It just a disagreement over, uh, Sotomayor's analysis of the specific facts of this case? Or, you know, is it a concern that this, uh, this case is, is, uh, it, it's, um, uh, too fact specific. This is just a, a pure error correction of a lower court and doesn't raise a larger legal issue that will apply to a lot of cases, which is the type of thing the court usually looks for in its cases. But we really have no idea. It's just pure speculation. So, um, it's just an, an interesting data point, um, and just, uh, interesting to kind of get a glimpse into, um, you know, the thinking of at least one member of the court. But, it, but, uh, it also kind of highlights, um, how opaque some of these things are and, and, uh, and how little we really do know about how um, you know, what the justices are thinking when, when they don't, uh, when they don't spell things out for us. Um, so with that out of the way, I'm going to move on to, uh, the new cert grants. So on Monday, also, uh, as part of the Monday orders list, the court granted cert. So that's agreed to hear two new cases. Um, and uh, these are cases that will, will be on next 
next terms calendar. So the, the, the term starting in October of 2018. Uh, and that brings us up to six cases so far that they've granted for next term. And again, they'll continue to fill out this calendar throughout the rest of their, um, of this term throughout uh, the end of June before they break for the summer. They'll continue to add cases to their fall calendar. Um, but they're up to six so far. And these two uh, new cases um, are interesting. One is a specific issue that has, um, uh, it, it's, uh, taking aim at a case that, that has long been, um, um, a target of, uh, of, uh, certain, um, uh, critics of, uh, of eminent domain practices. And the other case is kind of a, a, a an interesting, it's a, it's a raising a constitutional doctrine that, that, uh, um, kind of doesn't, doesn't get much, uh, uh, hasn't had much attention from the court in a long time. And, and so let me run through each of those now. So the first case is called Nick v. Township of Scott, Pennsylvania. And this is a case about the, uh, well, the underlying, um, uh, issue is the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment. And this is the portion of the Fifth Amendment that says, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. And specifically, this is a case that's challenging a 1985 Supreme Court case called Williamson, Williamson County Regional Planning Commission v. Hamilton Bank. And this is a, um, in the area of, uh, of, um, takings claims. So this is, uh, claims that the, the, the government has, um, has seized private property and, uh, and owes compensation. In those types of cases, um, Williamson County is a, a very significant case. And that case said, that when someone is bringing a case under the uh, for uh, under the just compensation for, um, uh, clause or of the uh, of the takings clause, the just compensation provision, where it says no private property shall not be taken without just compensation, and someone is saying that if they haven't received just compensation, the court held in that case that before they can bring that just compensation claim in federal court. The plaintiff must use whatever procedures the state has available to um, to to try and uh, get uh, get their just compensation through state procedures. But that includes not just uh, you know an administrative procedure the state might have in order to uh, you know provide for evaluation of property or things like that. But it includes using the state courts. Um, including if a if a plaintiff needs to actually sue the state or sue the agency or, or the municipality or whoever is involved, sue them, bring them to court, uh, alleging a taking and demanding um, uh, payment of compensation. Um, th- these actions are, are uh, they're usually re- referred to as inverse co- inverse cond- condemnation actions, and so that's an action by a property owner against the government. Uh, seeking compensation for a taking. It's kind of the backwards of a, a con- condemnation action is when the, the government comes in to seize a piece of property. Inverse com- condemnation is when the property owner sues the government saying, you have taken my property and now you owe me money. Um, but the Williamson County case said that a property owner, before they can come into federal court and raise this constitutional claim that they have been denied just compensation, they need to use all available state procedure- proceedings, even if that means suing the state to try and get their money from the state in court. Um, and we'll come back to that in a moment, but let's talk about the specific facts of this case. So Nick, uh, the named, uh, the, uh, the party in this case is, is her name is Rosemary Nick and uh, she owns 90 acres of land in rural Pennsylvania. And, uh, the land, uh, includes a single family residence and grazing land for animals. And the property is bounded by stone walls and fences and marked with no trespassing signs. Um, and the issue here is, 
in 2012, um, the the township of Scott, so Scott, Pennsylvania, that's where this property is located, passed an ordinance, and the ordinance said that all cemeteries shall be kept open and accessible to the general public during daylight hours. Now, significantly, cemetery was defined as a place or area of ground, whether contained on private or public property, which has been set apart for or otherwise utilized as a burial place for deceased human beings. Um, so what this is saying is, is any property that has a, any private property that has uh, a burial site on that private property must be kept open and accessible to the general public. Um, and it, it, moreover, the ordinance authorized code enforcement agents to enter private land to determine the existence or and location of cemeteries and uh, allowed them to issue fines, um, 300 to $600 per day fines for violating this ordinance that is not um, keeping these uh, burial places open to the public. Um, and I- interestingly, this ordinance was apparently specifically targeted at uh, at Nick, at Rosemary Nick. Um, there were local residents who uh, apparently who um, claimed uh, to be descended from um, Revolutionary War era, era burials uh, on Nick's property and wanted access to that burial site and the township um, uh, passed it in, in, in response to, to, uh, to, um, to that. Uh, it's not clear, uh, from, from the briefings that, that I've read, I, it's not, not clear whether, um, there are other private property in this township that's been affected, uh, um, by this, but, but, uh, it looks like, um, it was at least in part, it was, um, directly attempting to gain access to, um, uh, Ms. Nick's land. Now, what happened after this ordinance was passed was in April of 2013, so this was passed in 2012, um, code enforcement, a code enforcement officer entered, uh, her land unannounced, identified, um, grave markers on that land, um, and then cited Nick for a violation of the public access requirement and, um, ordered her to make the, make access to the, uh, to the, um, burial site available to the public. Um, Nick went ahead and filed an action in state court. Um, challenging this as a taking, so arguing that, that, that this is this is a classic taking. Basically, it's it's uh, creating an easement um, on her land and allowing the general public to physically occupy this piece of land um, would be a, 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 a classic type of a takings claim. And in response to that, the town agreed to withdraw the citation and not, at least uh, for the time being, not to enforce the ordinance. And because of that uh, posture, the state court refused to rule on her her takings claims because they had withdrawn the citation and were not enforcing it. Um, so she went to federal court uh, to to bring again this the same takings claim, saying that this ordinance, the ordinance itself, um, by forcing her to open up her land, was was constituted a taking, and she should be compensated um, for that uh, you know infringement on her her property rights, the normal normal right that comes with ownership of property to exclude. Um, exclude the, the general public from, uh, from access to the property. Um, but what happened was, uh, the, the federal court dismissed her, her case under the Williamson County case. So saying she had not fully, um, uh, gone through the, the, the state court. She had not, ha- the state court had not fully, uh, ruled on her claims. And so she couldn't bring this to federal court. Um, she had to go through the state court and use all available state court uh, processes to try and get compensation there before she could go into the federal court. Um, 
you know, uh, so, so this, so this is, uh, this, this case is directly challenging Williamson County. Now here, she, she argues that, that argues that here's what we have. We have the undisputed facts here are that the township enacted an ordinance that authorizes the public to physically occupy her land. The township actually enforced these provisions against her, issued a citation for failure to open the land up to the public, and commanded her to provide access to the public. And the township has not paid or offered compensation, and the ordinance contains no provision um, that provides for for compensation um, for this. So she says, given all those 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 facts, she's established a taking without compensation. That should be enough to get her into federal court. Um, and this this kind of brings up. There's a lot of Criticisms have been made of the Williamson County um, uh, the rule uh, over the years since it's since it's been in place, and some of these are um, are, are very practical um, critiques. And one is that that it ends up the argument is that it ends up just putting in place um, worthless procedural hurdles that people have to jump through. Some of the state court processes that people have to um, resort to before they can get into federal court, uh, are, are just, are just, uh, futile. Uh, for example, um, if someone has, has brought a, a challenge in state court against uh, an ordinance, a facial challenge to the ordinance, and that's been denied, and then they go, um, an action after that to, to seek, uh, a compensation for an inverse, in an inverse condemnation uh, proceeding is usually doomed to failure. Also, if someone has uh, has made a zoning application that's been denied, and then has to go and seek a variance, uh, there's usually a higher standard for a variance. And if they've already been denied, uh, that's that's likely futile too. So they have to jump through these procedural hurdles um, for no good reason. Uh, there's also and this is this is a concern that that there's been some some pretty um, very questionable gamesmanship by some government agencies under this. Now, um, I mentioned that. Uh, that, that uh, Williamson County says if you haven't um, fully gone through the, the state procedures, then you can't get into federal court. Well, there's a there's a uh, there's a process when a claim raising a uh, a federal right, so a federal uh, issue of federal law, is brought in state court. The defendant um, is often entitled to to it's it's what's known as removal is entitled to take that state that case in state court and remove it from state court and bring it into federal court. Um, what has actually happened in a number of cases uh, across the country is um, is a party has brought one of these claims, for example, an inverse condemnation claim, in state court, and then the the government entity that's involved in the case removes that case to federal court. So it says, well, this involves a federal claim, so let's take it out of state court and put it in federal court. And then once it gets to federal court, they argue to the federal court that under Williamson County, the federal court can't hear it and it needs to be dismissed. And in some cases, courts have gone ahead and done that and they've dismissed these cases, even though this the the government entity was the one that brought it into federal court in the first place and took it out of state court. So either the plaintiff ends up running in circles, going from state court back to federal court, and then has to go back to state court, and it's just wasting time. In some cases, it's, it's caused them to um, to cases to be barred from court by the statute of limitations because by the time the federal court gets dismissed, it's too late to go back and bring it back into state court. Um, even if the federal court just sends it back down to the state court rather than dismissing it outright, um, that just wastes time and money for no good reason and allows this, this crazy gamesmanship to happen. Um, and then one other criticism is that that part of the reason that that uh, plaintiffs want to get into federal court is they may they may feel like they'll get a fairer shake when they're going against a government entity in federal court than they might in state court. However, 
once uh, these claims have been fully litigated in state court, um, federal law requires the federal courts to give um, full respect to the state court's decision, and that means any issues that are decided um, in the state court proceeding, the federal court is bound by that. So there's there the um, there's no uh, new opportunity to actually um, argue the compensation issues in federal court if they've already been decided in the state court, and the federal court is just bound by whatever the state court decided. So essentially, it, it, through combinations of these different uh, um, uh, Barriers. The argument is that Williamson County ends up just denying people a federal um, venue, a federal forum to to uh, uh, hear these federal constitutional claims, and so those are kind of the practical criticisms. And then the 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 I guess more uh, more uh, doctrinal uh, you know legal criticisms are that 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 the argument is that it, it doesn't make sense to require people to go through all of the state. Um, uh, legal processes available. It, it, it's conflating the government entity that's actually involved in taking the property. So here it was the, the township. It was this Scott township in Pennsylvania that enacted this ordinance. The Scott township doesn't have any procedures in place to provide compensation under that ordinance. Um, and it, so, so the argument is that should be enough. They shouldn't have to go through everything that any part of the state government provides. The, the, the fact that the court system exists and that there are um, uh, claims like inverse condemnation that could potentially be brought um, it doesn't doesn't mean that the taking isn't complete when the township, the one that's actually imposed the uh, the infringement on the property, um, when they have done something without compensation. Um, there's no reason to conflate them with the entire state government. And there's also a strange uh, kind of aspect to it by saying that um, in federal court, uh, by saying, well, the claim is not really ready to be heard in federal court because until the state has definitively denied compensation or denied just compensation, there's no um, there's no uh, kind of complete full claim to bring in federal court. Um, but if, if it's enough to bring in state court, if, if you can bring the action in, in the constitutional claim in state court and argue that the um, – that you've been denied just compensation and, and that's allowed in state court, then, then it seems like the claim is complete. If the state court recognizes that as a complete claim, why can't it go into federal court? So those are, you know, various criticisms that have been made of of this. So it'll be interesting to see what the court uh, uh, does. The the fact that they've agreed to take this case suggests that there may be uh, members of the court who are willing to reconsider this doctrine or potentially cut back on it. So, um, uh, we'll see. Again, that'll be uh, coming up uh, early next term, uh, possibly as early as uh, um, the October oral argument sitting. Now, the second case that the court granted on Monday, um, also uh, that'll also be up uh, um, next term, so starting in October, is a uh, criminal case called uh, Gundy v. United States. Um, now, this this case, uh, it's it's a the issue is a very very unusual issue. Um, it, this involves the uh, the federal uh, sex offender registration and notification notification act which is known as SORNA for straight for for short SORNA and uh, the the specific issue here is a challenge to the congress's delegation of the retroactive application of SORNA to the attorney general now i'll i'll, I'll break that down and, and kind of 
get into it. First, real quickly, uh, basic facts of this case. The the uh, the criminal defendant here is named Herman Gundy. He was convicted in 2005 of a rape and uh, and uh, sentenced to time in state court. And he 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 had uh, some other um, prior convictions. And and uh, he, in any case, he was eventually later he was released from prison. In 2013, he was arrested and charged with, uh, for traveling interstate without registering under SORNA. So he, he was convicted of a sex crime. He was, did not register under the Sex Offender Registration and Notification Act. Then he traveled interstate and that subjected him to, uh, prosecution under, under, um, under SORNA's, uh, criminal provisions. Now, um, he, he, he raised, uh, several issues in his, uh, um, in his case, several issues related to this prosecution. There were some strange facts of the prosecution, including that the interstate travel that made him criminally liable actually occurred while he was still in federal prison custody and was transferred from one uh, um, one uh, place of custody to another. But the only issue that the Supreme Court is is is, is hearing in this case is just one uh, discrete issue about retroactivity. And, and here's what it's about. So he was convicted of the, uh, the the sex offense involved in this case, he was convicted in 2005, but SORNA was not enacted until 2006. So the question here is, do people who are convicted before SORNA was passed need to register under SORNA's provisions? Now, SORNA itself didn't answer this question. It, it, here's, here's, uh, here's what it said, right? It, it said, the Attorney General shall have the authority to specify the applicability of the requirements of this subchapter to sex offenders convicted before the enactment of this chapter. So it just says the Attorney General will specify whether these requirements are applicable. It doesn't say, you know, uh, it doesn't say one way, or the other, one way or the other whether they are. In 2007, the Attorney General issued a uh, a, 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 a regulation saying, the requirements of SORNA apply to all sex offenders, including sex offenders convicted of the offense for which registration is required prior to the enactment of that act. So Congress said in the act, Attorney General shall have the authority to specify whether it applies. The Attorney General said, yes, it applies to everybody, including if they were convicted before the act was passed. So so that answers that. And that's what's being challenged here was, was is specifically the delegation of this decision to the attorney general. Now, just as a side note, you may be asking, how can this be retroactive? You may be, you may think, isn't there, isn't there a provision in the constitution that the, the uh, bar on ex post facto laws that, that uh, says the government can't impose retroactive punishment? Now, this, this, uh, this was addressed in a Supreme Court case from 2003 called Smith v. Doe. Now, that was about a Alaska sex offender rest registry. This is before SORNA was enacted. And, the Supreme Court said that um, these could be retroactive, uh, at least in the Alaska case, they said this could be retroactive because what this registry was, it was just a, a it was a civil registry, just a, a government listing of, of names, addresses, other information. And it in itself was non-punitive. It was intended for, um, for public, uh, public notice and information purposes for tracking, things like that, not for, um, punitive punishment purposes. Therefore, it was not, it uh, wasn't itself imposing, uh, an additional, um, punishment. Um, the, so, so that could be imposed, uh, retroactively. Um, now, criminal violations of the sex offender laws; those, those, um, those can only occur uh, pr- 
prospectively, so after the law is passed, but the actual registry itself, the requirement that someone register can apply if the crime that someone's being required to register for happened beforehand. Now, the Supreme Court hasn't specifically ruled on that issue um, under the federal sort of, as I mentioned, that Smith v. Doe case was about the Alaska um, registry. But uh, several lower federal courts have, and uh, the general um, consensus is that it's pro- the court would probably come out the, the same way on that. So that that's not specifically an issue in this case. The issue in this case is uh, under something known as the non-delegation doctrine. Now, this is a, a constitutional theory. The basic idea is that the, the U.S. Constitution grants legislative power, so the, the power to, to make the laws, is granted to Congress. And that, that, that comes out in the, the very first sentence after the preamble of the Constitution. It, the, the very first sentence of Article 1 starts like this. All legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, which shall consist of a Senate and House of Representatives. And the idea is, the Constitution says legislative power is in the Congress, and the Constitution goes on to establish very specific requirements for the exercise of legislative power. You have what's known as bicameralism and presentment, meaning that majorities of both houses of Congress have to pass uh, legislation, plus it needs to be presented to the president for the president's uh, approval or potential veto before um, – before any legislation can be enacted. So the, the Constitution says the Congress has legislative power and Congress exercises legislative power in a specific defined way. And, you know, the the argument is that this, this, this constitutional structure is important. It creates certain institutional checks on the exercise of power. It also creates political accountability because the legislature, legislators have to actually vote on new laws uh, going into, into effect. Um, and the argument is, uh, under this non-delegation doctrine, the argument is if, if Congress is going to delegate legislative power to other government officials, it circumvents this constitutional structure, right? So the problem here is um, modern governance is, is, is structured around a, 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 very, a very large and, and very active administrative state. There are huge amounts of modern law that is is channeled through administrative agencies, and agencies create an enormous amount of binding law by enacting regulations, regulations that are um, that are binding both on on various uh, um, businesses and corporations engaged in various activities, and also regulations that are directly um, binding on individual um, Amer- Americans. So this uh, you know this looks um, on the surface looks like the exercise of legislative power. Uh, delegated by Congress to these uh, administrative agencies or uh, executive branch officials um, who, who are uh, exercising that legislative power on Congress's behalf under these delegations. Um, so to to understand this, uh, I, I'm going to have to jump back and, and do kind of a very brief uh, kind of recap of the history here, just uh, uh, very briefly. So the non-delegation doctrine it, it really it, it reached its its it, it, it um its its high point in 1935. Now, uh, in 1935, the Supreme Court decided two cases, holding in each of those cases that delegations of authority um, from Congress to executive branch officials were unconstitutional um, as as unconstitutional delegations. One of those cases was called Panama Refining Covey Ryan, and the other was called called ALA Schechter. Poultry Corp, the United States, and those cases were they were they, they were not close cases. The Panama Refining case was eight to one, and Schechter Poultry case was a nine zero. Um, 
uh, decision. And and in those cases, the, the court referred to something that is known as the intelligible principle test. So the basic idea is that Congress, uh, in order to delegate to uh, an agency or executive official, Congress has to establish an intelligible principle that guides the agency in its exercise of of this delegated authority, so in rulemaking power, power or other uh, um, legislative authority, there has to be some intelligible principle. They can't just have unguided discretion to do whatever they want to do. And the court, when it struck down these 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 uh, these two delegations in these cases, it said that basically Congress had had given uh, just unbridled you know legislative authority to to. Um, uh, to the executive branch and that that was, that, that was going too far. Now, the context at the time is this is 1935, so this is during the Great Depression, and these non-delegation decisions were viewed as a direct challenge to um, some of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal programs. And this was part of a broader conflict between Roosevelt and a majority of the Supreme Court. Um, and the, the history of this is, is complicated, but, but partially due to a change in the court's membership as, as some justices retired and Roosevelt eventually uh, was able to appoint a, a, a large majority of the, the court's membership. The court um, soon stopped opposing Roosevelt's New Deal policies and, and, um, and, and didn't strike down any more uh, uh, delegations of authority. And here's, here's the important thing. Since 1935, the Supreme Court hasn't struck down a single delegation to an agency or executive official as a violation of the non-delegation doctrine. So they struck down uh, two of these delegations in 1935 and have not done so since. However, the intelligible principle test is still officially, that's the governing law. The issue is that the court always finds a sufficient intelligible principle. So they, they, there have been non-delegation challenges brought, but every time the court says that there's enough of an intelligible principle, even cases dealing with extremely broad delegations to agencies. For example, there have been cases, several cases, where an agency is required to make certain uh, rules acting in the public interest, and the court has found that in the public interest was a sufficient intelligible principle to survive the non-delegation um, doctrine. And th- this has led many people to say that, that non-delegation is, is basically a dead uh, doctrine at the Supreme Court. If, if, if in the public interest is enough to survive the intelligible principle test, then it doesn't really mean much. But uh, this 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 issue, there there is a a, a very um, active and real uh, divide among uh, legal academics, judges, others that, that breaks down on along ideological lines. And there are many members of the the uh, what you could broadly call the the conservative legal movement who are broadly hostile to the vast growth of the administrative state and and have argued um, in academic uh, um, articles and also you know, among judges in, in some you know, court opinions have argued that the non-delegation doctrine should be reinvigorated. It should be um, given some strength to, to rein in uh, some of these extremely broad delegations of authority to agencies. And this has been far from universal. Justice Scalia uh, actually wrote uh, a opinion upholding a very broad delegation, and uh, and some uh, along those lines, have, um, even uh, uh, conservative legal thinkers, have 
argued that courts are not really equipped to engage in the kind of line drawing that a, a robust non-delegation doctrine would require. How much delegation is too much is not really a question courts are equipped to answer. But others have been much more skeptical. Justice Thomas has written um, a few opinions uh, very skeptical about the intelligible principle test. Um, and uh, m- most directly relevant to this case, uh, Justice Gorsuch when he was uh, still on the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals in a very similar case uh, directly about the the sort of the Sex Offender Registration and Notification Act, um, he wrote an opinion that raised these non-delegation issues, and I'll come back to that in just a minute. So that brings us to this case, this 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 Gundy case um, raising this non-delegation claim. Um, the government argues um, here's here's a, uh, a quote from the government's brief. Uh, quote, as the court has repeatedly observed, it has found only two statutes that lack the necessary intelligible principle, and it has not found any in the last 80 years. And the government goes on to point out that, that, uh, this exact question has been considered by all of the, basically all of the circuit courts, um, and, and, and none of them have found a, uh, majorities of, uh, of, none of those courts have found a, uh, um, a, a violation of the delegation principle, and the government just uh, essentially reading that, you you get the sense that the government is arguing, look, this is this is a dead doctrine. Um, it has hasn't hasn't been used really in eighty years. Uh, there's no, no need to take this case. So so why did the court take this case? Um, there's a couple interesting um, aspects of this case that that might explain that. One one is uh, the argument that that. That, that's made, and this is an argument that Justice Gorsuch made in the Tenth Circuit case uh, that he decided on this issue. The argument is that this delegation in in SORNA, it really is an example of no intelligible principle whatsoever. The argument is that the delegation contains no limitations whatsoever on the Attorney General's uh, uh, applying this law retroactively. The Attorney General... Um, could apply this to no sex offenders at all. The attorney general doesn't even need to act under this, wasn't required to make any determination, or could apply it to every sex offender con- committed before the act was passed, as the attorney general, in fact, did do. Um, there, there was no, in that uh, delegation, there was nothing um, guiding the attorney general or instructing the attorney general on what to base that decision on. The only principles or details or guidance that anyone can point to is in other parts of SORNA, not directly dealing with the retroactivity issue. Um, so, so, so maybe this this is a kind of an extreme case of a, a lack of intelligible principle on the particular delegation. Uh, another issue is is um, maybe there's really a special concern over criminal statutes. So most delegation issues. Are, are dealing with just broader regulatory matters in, in just any of the various agencies that the federal aid, the administrative agencies routinely deal with. Um, but this is a criminal statute, um, and depriving someone of their liberty, throwing someone into prison, is among some of the most you know serious uh, things that the government can do. And uh, courts often say that Congress should be given less leeway when it's acting in a, a criminal the criminal arena. Um, and Justice Gorsuch made both of these points in his opinion when he was back on the Tenth Circuit. Um, he, he, this is a line uh, from 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 that uh, opinion. He said, "Congress may effectively pass off to the prosecutor the job of defining the very crime he is responsible for enforcing." Um, so, so there may be concern over this, this specific criminal context here. So, a few things to watch for in this case. It'll be interesting to see whether this case breaks down along the. Uh, um, stereotypical uh, left-right liberal conservative lines. It, it may because there is that kind of uh, uh, political or ideological valence to these non-delegation 
the non-delegation issue broadly. Um, but it's also possible because of the specific details of this case and the context, the criminal context, that maybe things would go differently. Uh, it would be interesting, those justices who are um, interested in seeing this as a violation, um, do they do they seek to kind of better define the the boundaries of the intelligible principle test, or are they going to seek to replace the intelligible principle test altogether, perhaps with something um, something uh, with more uh, more 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 strength? Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that case plays out. But it's, it's interesting that the court has chosen to take up this issue um, uh, that that has uh, kind of not been. Uh, not been an active, um, uh, effective doctrine in a, in a long, long time. Uh, the last thing I want to touch on briefly is uh, two new opinions and argued cases uh, that came out also on Monday. The court issued two more cases. That brings us up to 13 total cases for the term. We're expecting uh, 51 additional opinions between now and the end of June, so still a lot left to come in this term. Um, but uh, but these these two, both of these were unanimous cases and neither of them are particularly um, high profile cases, but I'll, I'll just touch on each of them briefly. The first one is a case called Texas v. New Mexico, and this was a unanimous opinion by Justice Gorsuch. This was also a very quick turnaround. This case was argued uh, only back in uh, January 8th, so less than two months, um, which is which is uh, quick. Uh, by the court's uh, typical standards, uh, given that there's still a bunch of uh, October cases outstanding that the court hasn't hasn't issued yet. And this is a case in the court's original jurisdiction. That's a case that's brought directly in the Supreme Court rather than appealed from a lower court because this is a, a lawsuit directly between two states, so Texas suing New Mexico. Um, the basic facts of this case is a dispute over um, the water of the Rio Grande uh, river uh, and and um, under a, uh, a compact this is a, a uh, 1938 um, compact agreement between uh, Colorado New Mexico and Texas over um, access over use of the water from the Rio Grande so how much water each of those states is entitled to use and the the the, the issue that the court was deciding in this particular case was whether in this dispute so this the basic dispute here is uh, Texas is accusing New Mexico of Using too much water out of the river, basically, um, uh, un- under the specific terms of the compact between the states, New Mexico is required to provide a certain amount of water to a, a reservoir in New Mexico that's controlled by the federal government under a uh, uh, what's called the Rio Grande Project, and then the federal government manages water under certain agreements and uh, kind of uh, allocates that water between uh, other parts of New Mexico downstream of the of the reservoir and Texas further on, and. Um, the argument is that New Mexico is using too much water downstream of that um, reservoir, so they're 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 using too much water. Uh, there, so Texas is not getting its 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 uh, allocation. The issue here is the United States sought to intervene in this case, so they they came into this case at the Supreme Court and said that they wanted to also be a party in the case, basically making the same allegations as Texas, so making the same allegations against New Mexico. Um, and citing in part United States' treaty obligations with Mexico because the Rio Grande makes up uh, a large part of the border between Texas and Mexico, and the government has a treaty with Mexico where they uh, are obligated to provide a certain amount of um, water to Mexico. Um, and so they, they, they want to uh, come in too, but uh, New Mexico opposed that, arguing that United States was not a party to the, the compact that's being sued under, so they had no um, no 
uh, standing to to join the lawsuit. Um, the, the the case uh, the court ultimately decides that the United States can uh, have a role in uh, in in uh, this case. They can intervene and remain in the case, but it's an extremely um, uh, very specific case that just depends very heavily on the very specific facts of this case. The court relies on the fact that this is in the court's original jurisdiction. So these are cases where um, they don't come up through the lower courts. They come directly in the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court has a lot of leeway to really, um, really shape the process and how the case is going to be heard and how it, it does it. This is kind of more than their usual role in, in typical um, cases. And um, they, they, they cite, the court cites a number of considerations that favor allowing uh, intervention this time. They say that the, the compact is intertwined with these downstream contracts. That's the term the court uses for the agreements between the United States and New Mexico and Texas about allocating the water from the, the dam. And because those agreements are so intertwined with the compact and the compact works only because um, it kind of assumed the U.S.'s role in providing water to Texas under the downstream, these downstream agreements. And also that New Mexico had conceded that the United States plays an integral role in the operation of the compact that breaching the compact might affect the United States' treaty obligations. And also the court notes that because that the U.S. here is really just piggybacking on the Texas action. They're seeking the same relief, and Texas doesn't object to it, and and they're not looking for anything broader than what Texas is already asking for. So under those circumstances, the court says, yes, the United States can intervene, and they can stay in the case. It's 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 kind of odd because it's just such a narrow, fact-specific decision. Um, it... You know, applies only in these original actions, so that means this doesn't really have broader implications to uh, cases that will be heard in other courts. Um, and but it leaves open a lot of questions about it. It it, uh, it it's um, not clear what would happen if United States and Texas's interests diverge. It doesn't really give any guidance um, on on you know whether any of these four factors uh, ceased to exist or or didn't or weren't as as strong, how that would change its calculus in this particular case. So it's really a case that provides very little guidance. Now, because this is in the case's original jurisdiction, there's no need here, as in most of its cases, there's no need to provide guidance to any lower courts because these cases will never be brought in lower courts. Uh, these type of water disputes come directly to the Supreme Court. Um, but on the other hand, in these cases, and I've talked about this on previous, uh, previous podcast episodes, but in these cases, the court uh, the court does not like to deal with kind of trial type processes. So when the court has these original jurisdiction cases, it's normal uh, process is to appoint a special master who basically acts like a lower court judge in these cases and conducts uh, proceedings in these cases, which then are kind of more or less appealed from that special master to the Supreme Court. And this case really gives very little guidance to future special masters dealing with these water cases on, 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 on when the United States can uh, intervene or not. So it's it's kind of a interesting case. It, it kind of gives the impression that the court just wanted to decide this quick, get this out of its way, but but without really setting down any any bigger principles that may come back to uh, to uh, have uh, results that the court doesn't like in a future case. So that's um, that's 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 that case. So one one more opinion uh, that came down on Monday, and this is a case called U.S. Bank v. Village at Lake Ridge. Um, and this is another uh, unanimous decision, but it's again, this is a very narrow um, opinion. It's, it's This is a, a bankruptcy case, and it deals with a very specific provision of bankruptcy law 
But it's not really about the provision of bankruptcy law. It's really about the standard of review that an appellate court should use to evaluate this particular um, uh, legal standard. Uh, so it's, it's a very, very specific um, particular thing that it's that it's dealing with. Uh, however, it, it, it's a case that, that will likely have broader implications on a lot of um, issues of, of, of appellate uh, uh, appellate court review of cases going far beyond the bankruptcy area. So this might be a case that actually ends up having broader implications, just not really, um, not really important in the bankruptcy area that it's talking about. So let me quickly run through, just try and try and lay out the basic facts of this case and explain what the issue that's being decided is here. The, the, Entity that's in bankruptcy is known as Village at Lake Ridge, uh, Village at Lake Ridge LLC. Now, the, which is just referred to as Lake Ridge throughout the opinion. Now, Lake Ridge is wholly owned by another company called M- MBP Equity Partners. Now, Lake Ridge had uh, debt; it, it owed money to MBP Equity Partners, so that's that's the entity that owns it, and it also owed money to U.S. Bank. Um, a significant amount. It owed 2.76 million to, to MBP. It owned 10 million dollars to U.S. Bank. Now, Lakeridge filed for a Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Chapter 11 is the uh, portion of the bankruptcy um, code that allows for a business to be reorganized. So this is this is different from Chapter 7 bankruptcies, which is where a business is fully liquidated and all the assets are distributed to the creditors. In a Chapter 11. Uh, there's a reorganization of a business and it allows an entity to survive. The, the, the court has broad power to restructure a business, restructure its debts, its contracts, um, just various aspects of the business to allow it to survive and create, for example, payment plans to its uh, creditors going forward. And it's just that the, the, the purpose of this provision is it recognizes that sometimes a business is worth much more alive than then it's broken up and sold off in pieces. The creditors may be better off in the long run if they can keep a business alive. And even if in the short run, they're getting less out of it than they would have if they just uh, liquidated and sold it in the long run, they may end up better be better being better off. And a key um, piece of the, the chapter 11 process is the plan of reorganization. And so this is a plan that's put together that, that explains how the business is going to be reorganized and 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 what and how the various uh, creditors are, are going to be uh, paid, what their rights will be, and how they'll be paid going forward. Um, the the preferred way that these reorganization plans work is is uh, is a consensual way where method where all creditors or classes of creditors, when if creditors are kind of divided in different categories, all the creditors or classes agree to the reorganization, um, and then 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 the plan can just be the court can put that plan in place and it can go forward. Um, but there's a, a different process, and that's what's involved here, which is known as a cram down. And that's where at least one creditor or creditor class objects to the reorganization plan. Um, now, sometimes that that'll be the end of it, but sometimes um, the the uh, the debtor can can work around this if there's at least one other creditor class that uh, agrees to the plan. Um, then, and certain other requirements are met, the court can still impose this, and it's, it's called a cram down, and it's it's forced on the objecting creditor anyway. Um, the, but I, there's also a requirement that the court has to see that the objecting creditors must still be treated fairly and equitably. So they have they have to be treated fairly, even even though they're objecting to it. They have to get fair treatment out of the the new reorganization plan. But here here's the key issue, and this is where it comes up in this in this case. I mentioned that 
in order to uh, have one of these cram downs, one of the requirements is that at least one creditor needs to agree to their reorganization plan. That agreeing creditor must be a non-insider. And an insider is defined in the bankruptcy code, and it's defined to include various things, including a director, an officer, a person in control of the bankrupt entity. Um, and the issue here is you had two creditors. You had U.S. Bank and you had MBP. MBP owns Lake Ridge. Um, and as an owner of Lake Ridge, the, the bankrupt entity, it is obviously an insider. So therefore, uh, if U.S. Bank objects to the reorganization, MBP can't be the agreeing creditor because they're an insider, so they don't count. So here's, here's what happened. So one of the board members of MBP named Kathleen Bartlett arranged for the sale of MBP's $2.76 million claim against Lakeridge, arranged to sell that claim to a third party, to Robert Rabkin, who's who's described as a retired surgeon. And this $2.76 million claim was sold to him for $5,000. So the issue here is Rabkin now owns this $2.76 million claim. If he um, is a non-insider, then he can consent to the cram-down plan. Um, and, and that could potentially allow this uh, this reorganization to go forward. Now, Rabkin doesn't fit into any of the listed categories of insiders. He's not a director, not an officer, not any of those the listed what are called statutory insider categories. But the courts have held that that um, that because it refers to insiders as including these various things, it's a non-exclusive list. Um, that there can be other types of insiders who aren't those specific categories that are listed, and these are called non-statutory insiders. So the dispute here was whether Rabkin is a non-statutory insider. So despite not being in one of those specific categories, he's still an insider. And U.S. Bank says, yes, he says he's an insider. And what they cite is basically that Bartlett, that again is the board member of MBP, um, who arranged this deal to sell the debt to, to, um, to, to Rabkin, Bartlett and Rabkin were romantically involved. And so the allegation here is that, that this was not uh, what's, what's referred to as an arm's length transaction. Now, arm's length transaction is just a term for um, when, when two parties are transacting in their individual self-interests without a conflict of interest between the parties. Um, so it's not, not a, not a uh, kind of a conflicted uh, transaction. And the U.S. bank says this was not arm's length. These people had a romantic uh, relationship. And, and so this, this was just a, uh, a kind of an a insider deal in that respect. The bankruptcy court disagreed. The bankruptcy court said that Rabkin and Bartlett, despite this relationship, they maintained separate homes, separate finances. Rabkin had said that he'd done this as a speculative investment and he did adequate due diligence before he entered into the deal. The court described this as an arm's length transaction. Now, this went up to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals had established a test for determining whether someone was a non-statutory insider. And their test had two factors. The first was looking at the closeness of the relationship between the the the, uh, the debtor and this um, potential insider and determining whether it's comparable to that of one of the uh, the statutory insiders listed listed in the bankruptcy code. So that's the first factor. And the second factor is well, whether the relevant transaction was negotiated at arm's length. 
And in order to find that someone was a non-statutory insider, the Ninth Circuit's test said they had to both, the relationship had to resemble one of the listed relationships and that it had to be a non-arm's length transaction. So both of those had to be met. And the Ninth Circuit said, well, the bankruptcy court found it was an arm's length transaction. So that's enough to, to fail the second prong of this test. The court didn't have to decide, um, the first part, whether the closeness of the relationship, um, was was similar because it found that it was an arm's length transaction. That's enough to bring it out of the insider test, and um, and and so that's what the bankruptcy court found. Now here's the real issue. So, so we've gone through all that. This is the real issue, the, the the very very narrow issue that the court agreed to review. The Ninth Circuit said that the bankruptcy court found this arm's length transaction, right? And the Ninth Circuit said it was reviewing that under clear error review. That means it's going to accept the bankruptcy's courts the bankruptcy court's determination unless it is clearly in error that this was an arms length transaction. That's the Supreme Court granted this just to decide the single question, was that the right standard to review this under? Right? So let me step back a little and just talk about standards of review for a second. So appellate courts review issues that have already been decided by some lower court. And the question is, when an appellate court reviews a decision that's been made by a lower court, should that appellate court give deference to the lower court's decision? Um, so just give a lot of weight to what the lower court did and only reverse if the lower court clearly got something wrong? Or should the appellate court just decide the issue from scratch, just start over, decide the issue on its own, and just whenever it comes to a different uh, conclusion than the lower court, reverse the lower court's decision? The answer is maybe uh sometimes uh, it's 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 complicated so the most fundamental distinction uh when you're talking about standard, standards of review is between what's referred to as questions of law and questions of fact so courts uh regularly make factual determinations these are sometimes called findings the court finds facts but courts also decide what the governing law is they interpret the law decide what the law is that's sometimes called holdings um but in any case sometimes courts are deciding facts sometimes they're deciding the law and the standard of review kind of reflects a division of labor between trial courts and appellate courts. So trial court factual determinations, when trial court finds a particular fact, um, that's usually reviewed under a very deferential clear and error standard. The trial court findings will stand unless they're clearly erroneous. The idea here is the trial judge is more deeply enmeshed in a factual record. The trial judge may see and hear from witnesses firsthand if, if there's in-court testimony. The trial court has day-in, day-out experience weighing facts. That's what trial judges are expert at, and that's what they do. The appellate court is working from a more limited, what's called a cold record, um, that they, they get the record on appeal, which doesn't necessarily contain everything. They're not seeing live witnesses. Um, and here, this would include the basic facts about Rabkin and Bartlett. For example, the, the, the court's findings that they weren't living together and had separate finances. Those are, those are issues of fact that, um, that would be entirely entitled to, to deference and the appellate court is not going to overturn those unless they're clearly wrong. And those basic facts are not challenged here. Now, when trial courts make legal determinations when they decide what the law is. These are usually refer, view, viewed under under what's referred to as a de novo standard. That's a, that's just a fancy way of saying that the, the court starts from scratch. It just reviews them fresh, starts over. The appellate court comes to its own determination. It doesn't defer to what the trial court says. Um, 
Now, a pure legal determination doesn't depend on the specific facts of the case. And this is where appellate judges are supposed to be expert. They're supposed to be expert in legal interpretation. Um, they're not selected for the skills at trial management, but they're supposed to be experts in, in uh, determining and interpreting the law. Um, so that would, that would, in this particular case, that would, the, the Ninth Circuit's two-part test for finding a non-statutory insider, that's a legal standard. And there, the Ninth Circuit didn't defer to the bankruptcy court. It just declared that that's the standard that it used. And that's not challenged here either, right? Um, so, so, so that's the simple, the simple issues, a pure question of fact, a pure question of law. Um, and here when I'm talking about how these, these are, are, um, these are reviewed. The standards are reviewed for these things. This I'm talking g- about general practice in federal court. There's many exceptions to this. Sometimes state courts are a little different. Sometimes state appellate courts don't give the same amount of deference to trial courts as federal courts do. Sometimes specific statutes will define the standard of review, a different standard of review for a particular situation. Uh, for example, you see this in federal um, habeas corpus proceedings. Federal courts are required to treat certain um, uh, state court constitutional determinations highly deferentially. So even though they're determinations of law, um, the court gives a high degree of deference. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes you see that in, uh, when a court is reviewing uh, determinations by an administrative agency, sometimes those kind of administrative agency fact findings are given uh, a high degree of deference. Sometimes the court decides things fresh. It just it depends on the, the situation. So we're talking in generalities here, but in general, you have this division between questions of fact and questions of law. But some things don't neatly fit in either of those categories. They have the creative name of mixed questions of law and fact. Now, these these are when there's an application of a legal standard to a specific set of historical facts. You're not talking about what's the legal standard. You're not talking about what the facts are. You're talking about how does this standard apply to this set of facts. It's not always simple or straightforward. It may involve fairly vague or general legal standards. It doesn't quite fit neatly in the pure law or the pure fact category. So Justice Kagan, who wrote the majority opinion in this case, she describes the key inquiry in this case like this. She says, what is the nature of the mixed question here and which kind of court, bankruptcy or appellate, is better suited to resolve it? And then she goes on to say, uh, to kind of describe um, different types of mixed questions. She says, some require courts to expound on the law, particularly by amplifying or elaborating on a broad legal standard. These, she says, are more similar to questions of law, and these are in the expertise of the appellate court. They should be reviewed de novo, that is, start from scratch, the appellate court doesn't defer. And then she says, other mixed questions immerse courts in case-specific factual issues, compelling them to marshal and weigh evidence, to make credibility judgments, etc. And these are the things that she says the trial court is more expert at, and these should get the deferential clear error review. So she goes on, and given this, she boils down the the question being reviewed in this case to a very um, just a very just a one simple simple question. She says, "What are what are they really?" Uh, what's the real question here under under this arm's length transaction um, standard? And she describes it like this. Given all the basic facts found, was Rabkin's purchase of MVP's claim conducted as if the two were strangers to each other? Um, and then she goes on to say, that is about as factual sounding as any mixed question gets. So based on that, she says... This, this, this question is, is a mixed question of law and fact, but it's very fact intensive. It's a very factual inquiry. This is the type of thing that the bankruptcy court should get deference on. So the result here, she said, they say the Ninth Circuit was correct to defer 
to the bankruptcy court's fact-finding on the arm's-length transaction. So the Ninth Circuit used the correct standard of review. Now, that that's the answer to that kind of narrow legal question. Uh, there's a, uh, two concurrences in this case, and in this kind of the concurrences are very interesting because they really highlight how limited this case is. So the first, there's there's one concurrence by Justice Sotomayor that's joined by Justices Kennedy, Thomas, and Gorsuch, and here she makes especially a special emphasis of the fact that the Ninth Circuit's two part test, that two part test that required them to to, to find a non statutory insider, they had to say first whether the relationship is similar to the statutory categories, and second, whether there was an arms-length transaction. Um, she notes this is not being reviewed by the court. The court is not endorsing the Ninth Circuit's test and is not considering whether that test is right or wrong. But she goes on to really cast some serious doubt on the Ninth Circuit tests. She says, basically, this doesn't seem to be consistent with the normal meaning of an insider. Usually when you have an insider, an insider transaction is suspect regardless of whether the particular transaction is is arm's length. And when you're dealing with those statutory categories like directors and officers and things, it doesn't matter whether there's an arm's length transaction. They're insiders uh, just because of the relationship. And so she kind of suggests that really the focus on the similarity of the relationship to the statutory categories is really what should should um, should be the primary focus here. Um and then she, she goes on from there to suggest that under a different test, if the Ninth Circuit had applied a different test that was focused more on the relationship, Rabkin might very well be an insider. He had a romantic relationship with a director of the, of the, uh, the company. He had knowledge, um, of the whole, the bankruptcy proceedings that were happening. He, he got an exclusive offer to, uh, to do this, this, uh, this, this deal. Um, and, and she says even, uh, even under this, this clear error standard, um, the, the uh, the case might have turned out differently uh, if the Ninth Circuit had been, had been applying a different standard than the one that it actually applied. Uh, and she also says um, this this the, the court held in this case, uh, Justice Kagan held that um, that the Ninth Circuit was correct to uh, to apply the clear error deferential clear error standard. But Justice Sotomayor in this concurrence, and again this is a concurrence for four justices, it's, uh, she says that. Um, had the Ninth Circuit applied a different standard, then maybe clear error might not have even been the right standard of review to apply. Um, so it's kind of just highlighting, you know, the, the narrowness here. And there's a second concurrence by Justice Kennedy. Now, Justice Kennedy was one of the justices who also joined Justice Sotomayor's concurrence. And, and, um, he, he says in his concurrence that really he thinks that um, the arm's length transaction, what was described as this, uh, and he agreed because he joined the majority too, was this uh, um, very factual um, type of uh, mixed question. Um, he thought that the lower courts should really uh, consider fleshing out a legal standard for what amounts to an arm's length transaction. And if lower courts were to uh, try and flesh out the standard, that would be a de novo. That would be a legal um, determination, a legal uh, elaboration that uh, the appellate courts could could uh, could do without needing to defer to lower courts on that, and um, and and he think he thinks this could use some further elaboration. But he also goes on to say that there's some reason to think that the lower courts got it wrong, even on uh, the arms length transaction test that the um, th- that was applied here. Um, he he points to the fact that the offer that was given to Rabkin wasn't offered to other bidders. Um, it was it was kind of a, a deal just just uh, solely to him, and that that alone might be enough to put it out of the uh, arm's length transaction category. This could even be 
uh, enough to be clear error. So even under the clear error standard that the court says should be applied to this, um, this could amount to clear error. But he goes on to note that the court didn't agree to decide that issue. The court was solely deciding the issue of the standard of review. So that's not before it. So it's interesting because those concurrences really highlight how extremely narrow the court's decision was. Um, the court was only deciding the standard of review of a very specific bankruptcy rule. And that specific bankruptcy rule might not even be the right rule that should apply in future cases. Um, this case will probably be more influential for its very, uh, very clear description of the uh, the standard the process for determining with a standard of review for mixed questions of law and fact. Justice Kagan is a very clear writer, and uh, and her kind of stepping through uh, uh, different types of mixed questions of law and fact is very readable, and that that's kind of very broadly applicable even beyond the area of bankruptcy law. So it, so it seems likely that this case will be more significant just for that general question of how should a court go about deciding what's the right standard of review to apply. So that brings me to the end of, uh, of that opinion. And, uh, that's basically it for, for tonight's episode. That brings us to the end of this live stream episode. The next live stream will be a week from today. So that's, uh, Thursday, March 15th, again at 9 p.m. Eastern time. That's our normal live stream time. Um, you can always check the Counting to Five YouTube channel to find the next scheduled live stream. Um, what's on tap for next week? There's no conference this week. The court has no conference this week. So we're not expecting any significant orders or opinions or new, new, uh, new cases to be granted next week. Um, though there's always the possibility of emergency orders, things like that. Um, the March oral argument session begins on Monday, the 19th. And the court is hearing four cases in the first week of its March arguments and five cases the second week. So in next week's live stream, we plan to preview the four cases that are going to be argued in the first week. One of those cases has been getting a lot of attention. It's called Nifla v. Becerra. And that's the First Amendment case about a California law mandating disclosures at uh, so-called crisis pregnancy centers. Those are um, senator centers uh, operated by pro-life uh, groups that counsel women about alternatives to abortion. Um, and that's been kind of a high-profile case. Um, there's also, next Thursday, there are, right now, there are two um, executions scheduled um, for next Thursday in uh, in two different states. So there are very, very likely be some last-minute stay applications, uh, again, related to those uh, death penalty um, cases. So we'll be keeping an eye on that also. Um, so that's uh, that's what's likely uh uh, on deck for, uh, for, for next week's live stream. Now, whether you're watching on YouTube or listening to the audio podcast, I'd love your feedback. You can leave comments on the show notes at counting to five.com or the counting to five YouTube channel or Facebook page. You can tweet at counting to five or send me an email at Mike at counting to five.com. Please subscribe to the counting to five YouTube channel or the audio podcast to make sure you don't miss future episodes. And thank you for listening. This has been counting to five.